This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today we're discussing the history behind the prevalence of Filipino nurses in the United States healthcare system. The Archipelagic Republic of the Philippines is located in Southeast Asia. After explorer Ferdinand Magellan arrived in the Philippines in 1543, it was colonized by Spain and named Las Islas Filipinas in honor of Philip II of Spain. More than 300 years of Spanish rule left a lasting legacy in the architecture, language, and food of the Philippines. In 1896, a secret military society called the Katipunan launched the Philippine Revolution to break from Spanish rule. It wasn't the only conflict Spain was involved in. In 1898, the United States declared war on Spain spurred on by the Cuban Revolution, where the U.S. was backing the revolutionaries. The Spanish-American War ended with the December 1898 Treaty of Paris, in which Spain ceded Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippine Islands to the U.S., along with temporary control of Cuba. On June 12, 1898, the Philippine revolutionaries had declared independence from Spain. And on January 21, 1899, the first Philippine Republic was established. However, the United States did not recognize the Republic, leading to the devastating Philippine-American War. In 1902, the Philippine Organic Act established an American civil government in the Philippines. The United States saw itself as a benevolent colonizer, believing they were bringing Christianity, civilization, and public health practices with them. To that end, the United States established educational programs in the Philippines soon after it became a U.S. territory. In addition to elementary and secondary schools, the Americans set up nursing training programs with instruction and even licensure exams, all conducted in English. In 1916, the U.S. Congress passed the Jones Act, which said that the U.S. would recognize Philippine independence, quote, as soon as a stable government can be established therein, unquote. But they didn't set a date for such recognition. Filipinos repeatedly called for concrete steps to be established. 
1934, Congress passed the Tidings-McDuffie Law, which was then accepted by the Philippine legislature, and which set up a 10-year transition period, after which the Philippines would be an independent country. In that 10-year period, World War II broke out, and the Japanese occupied the Philippines from 1942 to 1945. After the Japanese surrender, the United States recognized Philippine independence on schedule, with President Truman issuing Proclamation 2695 on July 4, 1946, and then with the signing of the Treaty of Manila. Independence would have limited immigration of Filipinos to the United States. But in 1948, the U.S. created the Exchange Visitor Program. The goal of the Smith-Munt Act of 1948 was to, quote, promote a better understanding of the United States in other countries and to increase mutual understanding between Americans and citizens of other countries. Under this program, foreign professionals could visit the United States for two years. The program was not specifically designed for Filipinos or for healthcare workers, but Filipino nurses, already trained in American nursing practices and with English language skills, made heavy use of the program. In 1965, the United States enacted the Hart-Seller Act, also known as the Immigrations and Nationality Act of 1965. As we've discussed on this podcast before, the new immigration system reduced the previous barriers to immigration that had been in place for non-European immigrants. One of the preferences for immigration in this act was skilled employment. At the same time, the establishment of the Medicare and Medicaid programs in 1965 increased the need for trained nurses in the United States. Filipino nurses were needed in the U.S., and they faced stresses in the Philippines, including high rates of unemployment, political instability, and the devaluation of the Philippine peso against the U.S. dollar, all of which made emigration, and specifically emigration to the United States, particularly attractive. As today's guest, Dr. Catherine Siniza Choi has noted, quote, By the early 1970s, a Filipino nurse in the Philippines needed to work 12 years to earn what she could make in the United States in one year, unquote. Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos saw the opportunity to create a labor export economy, and the Philippine government began to encourage this out-migration. Filipino nurses were specifically recruited to the U.S. to serve on the front lines of nursing. This has been driven home during the COVID pandemic. A February 2021 report 
by National Nurses United, found that while Filipinos make up about 4% of registered nurses in the United States, they counted for a stunning 26.4% of the registered nurses who had died of COVID-19 and related complications. This is not a new phenomenon. In the 1980s and 1990s, Filipino nurses were often on the front lines of the AIDS epidemic as well, filling the least desirable nursing jobs and shifts. Joining me now to help us learn more about Filipino nurses is Dr. Catherine Siniza Choi, Professor of Asian American and Asian Diaspora Studies and Comparative Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of both the 2003 book, Empire of Care, Nursing and Migration in Filipino-American History, and the new book, Asian American Histories of the United States. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, this is just a, a terrific book. I'm really excited to have gotten a chance to read it early. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the inspiration, which I know is not all happy, but you know what? Why? Why did you write this book now? Well, honestly, I started writing the book before a few years before 2020 and before COVID nineteen was declared a pandemic. But it wasn't until 2020 and 2021 that I started to really focus on the why, why I was writing this book. And I wrote the book in this context of the surge of anti-Asian hate and violence in the context of the disproportionate toll of the pandemic on Filipino American nurses. And in many ways, these things were were not new. And yet so many Asian Americans were experiencing this hatred for the first time or at a level of intensity that they hadn't before. And so it really came out of that. Um, that very difficult time in our recent history. And the second thing that was happening was in 2020, many journalists started contacting me about why there was this surge in anti-Asian violence and why historical context was important. And they also started asking me about why so many Filipino nurses are here in the United States and dying from COVID-19. And some of their questions were very straightforward, but also very basic in introductory questions to try to explain to the American public this longer presence of Asian Americans in the United States. And I realized that despite the progress Asian American historians and other scholars had been making, there was still so much more we had to do in terms of presenting Asian American history to a broader audience. Yeah. And so in the title to this book, 
uh, you talk about Asian American histories. And so I, I thought that was so compelling. And it's it's interesting to sort of think about this uh, interplay, I think, between there being so many different stories, so many different histories, and yet also value in thinking about Asian American as a category. So I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit and talk about this idea of histories. Thank you so much for that question. Initially, when I was writing and thinking about this book, which also came out of over two decades of teaching Asian American history, Asian American history in course titles and in my original book proposal was in the singular and not the plural. But from the beginning of my career, um, and I I think this is true for so many Asian American historians, we, we grapple with the incredible diversity and the size, the continuing growth and heterogeneity of who is Asian American and what does Asian American include. And it is such a difficult issue to deal with as an Asian American historian. And even before U.S. immigration laws changed in 1965, there was already this difficulty in terms of summarizing and integrating the histories of the largest Asian American groups before 1965, which were Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, Asian and Indian, and Korean American. And then after 1965, when um, immigration laws changed, we saw this incredible exponential growth of the Asian American community. And it now includes over 23 million people from over 20 countries and from East Asia, Southeast Asia, and the Indian subcontinent. And then on top of that, there's so many other kinds of diversity in Asian American uh, communities. And so for me, I feel that it is just so difficult to say that there's a singular Asian American history that encompasses this group. And hence in in the title and throughout the book, I emphasize that there are multiple Asian American histories. And this is a living history that continues to be dynamic and continue to grow. And we need to be open to that multiplicity. Yeah. And so I want to talk some then about the organization of the book, because you're looking at uh, sort of different moments in history, in Asian American histories, and and yet drawing connections from the past to the present and and back and forth. And so I, I wonder if you could sort of talk us through how you decided to take this massive amount of <laughs> uh, story and information and and put it into a book. Yes, that's always the challenge, I think, with historical work is this aspect of synthesis of uh, previous scholarly conversations about your topic and then new research that has been done and your own original research and integrating all of those insights to create a narrative for the audience. And so that was a major challenge in this book. Um, And so one of the unique aspects of the book is I take a nonlinear approach to the organization of the book. 
And we're often accustomed to history books starting from one origin point back in time and then moving forward in linear fashion to a more contemporary period or the present day. And I had thought about that kind of chronological organization for the book, but then because of my experience and the broader Asian American community's experience in 2020 and 2021, I thought to myself, I I want to structure this differently and have each substantive chapter feature one calendar year. And rather than begin in the second half of the 19th century, I'm going to have chapter one begin with the year 2020 Mm -hmm. and move back in time. And so the chapter one is 2020. Chapter two is 1975, and then it goes back to feature particular years, 1968, 1965, 1953, and concluding with 1869. And then each of the chapters is not solely about that or strictly about that calendar year, but rather that year and some of the major events that that are happening during that year serve as a touchstone for a particular theme. And then each chapter goes back in time to show a longer histories of that theme or that moment. And also to our present day to show how these histories and these particular years and events still resonate, still resonate for us in the present. And that history truly is relevant. Yeah, I I really appreciated it. I think that's, you know, some of the individual things you were writing about were things, you know, I had known about, especially from researching for this podcast, but seeing all these connections and and how they resonate, I think was was really powerful. And so I I hope people will get the book and we'll we'll see that piece of it. I I wanted to ask too, you have these uh, themes in the book. So you talk about uh, violence, erasure, and resistance. And I feel like those are kind of the themes writ large of this podcast, (laughs) although I've never expressed them in that way. So I wonder if you could talk about those themes, why those were the ones that, that you pulled out and sort of saw as recurring throughout these histories. Thanks so much for that question. Those are the three major themes of the book. And it was challenging to say, here are these three themes, (laughs) because there's so many themes in this growing group of of Americans um, in, in the 21st century. And Again, going back to the year 2020 and 2021 as, as formative years and experiencing not solely what was happening in terms of the pandemic and the surge in anti-Asian violence, but also the kinds of questions I was fielding from the media. Certainly violence was a, a major theme that came up and we say violence, it's, it's one word, but it's really an umbrella category that encompasses so many different experiences. And oftentimes what we're familiar with and what the media will 
portray or or analyze are the most egregious forms of violence. And there's certainly that in Asian American histories, but then there are all these other forms, whether it's shunning in public places, spitting, bullying, verbal harassment, as well as arson, um, massacre, lynching. And then the second theme of erasure or omission of Asian American experience from U.S. history more broadly is something that I've been grappling with throughout my academic career and with my research, but I really wanted to say it in a very straightforward way that even in 2022, Asian Americans and their histories are not integrated well in our educational system. They're not well known by the general public. And so Asian American scholars get the same questions again and again, and the same kind of reactions, such as, I I didn't know that about our history. And to, to directly respond to that, I wanted to emphasize throughout the book that part of this is the historical outcome of erasure and omission. And sometimes it's a benign neglect or forgetfulness, but sometimes it's intentional um, to uphold certain myths about U.S. history. And then finally, the third theme of the book, which is resistance, was to say that Asian Americans are historical actors. We are not solely here in US history and have things done to us. That there is this longer history of Asian Americans who have fought back, spoken out, stood up in a range of ways against their omission, their denigration and dismissal in the American experience. And that this is the part that can be empowering and it can also be difficult to to confront, but there's also strength and even aspects of of joy in the Asian American experience. And, And that's very important to remember. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So I, I want to turn to the the Filipino nurses uh, specifically, uh, who, as you mentioned, you've been studying for a very long time. Uh, I think it, it, it brought me back to we did an episode in May on uh, Thai restaurants with uh, Mark Benengpat. And, you know, it's the, a similar kind of thing, like everyone thinks, oh, Thai people, restaurants, and never questions, okay, but why? <laughs> and so it, it feels like there's a, a similar sort of uh, understanding in America, like, oh, yeah, there's lots of Filipino nurses, but no one's saying, but why? <laughs> so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you got into this sort of why question and the, the drive of your initial research into the Filipino nurses. Sure. Well, let me first say that I really enjoyed that episode of your podcast with Mark Kanumpat, and I'm also a fan of his research. And I love the parallel that and connection you're making between 
his work and how Thai Americans are so often associated or conflated with food and Thai food specifically, and how this is um, a parallel to the Filipino American experience, where if you are Filipino American, if people know something about Filipino Americans in the United States, they will associate Filipino Americans with healthcare and specifically nursing. And this was a, a topic of um, my dissertation research, which became my first book, Empire of Care. And it's a topic that started from my childhood. I was born and raised in New York City. I'm the daughter of Filipino immigrants. And growing up in Lower East Side Manhattan, one of my first and strongest memories is the observation that so many Filipinos in, in my community were nurses. Now, no one in my immediate family was a nurse, but so many of our neighbors who are Filipino um, uh, women were nurses and they worked in the many different hospitals surrounding my neighborhood. And like so many Americans, I grew up K through 12, not learning anything about Asian American, um, let alone Filipino American history. And as I started to become more serious about history in college, I realized that I wanted to go into a PhD program in history, and I wanted to document and analyze Filipino American immigrant experience, women's experience. And I returned to my childhood observation and that question, why were there so many Filipino nurses in New York City um, when I was growing up? And that led to a primarily sociological literature about how since 1965, there have been over 150,000 Filipino nurses who have immigrated to the United States that by the late 20th century, the Philippines had become the world's leading exporter of nurses to highly developed countries and that the United States was a leading destination. And so you have great concentrations of Filipino nurses in New York, but also in California, Texas, um, Florida, Massachusetts, Illinois, and, and really through, throughout the United States. So they're a highly visible presence, but even though they're more visible in the more contemporary period, late 20th, early 21st century, there's a much longer history of why it is U.S. hospitals and other healthcare institutions have recruited and, and employed Filipino nurses. And it's a history that goes back over a century to U.S. colonization um, of the Philippines. And, and that's surprising for a lot of people. So I, I want to dig into that sort of further back history for a minute. Uh, and I, I, I want to sort of ask why your book is titled Empire of Care and talk a little bit about that empire 
And then also this term uh, that just sort of sends a shudder down my spine of benevolent assimilation um, that goes with that and sort of what what that means and how that leads to this sort of unintended consequence of the, the exportation of nurses. Well, I titled the book Empire of Care uh, to emphasize the major themes of why so many Filipino nurses are in the United States. And one of the major reasons is this theme of U.S. empire and U.S. imperialism and how that larger history of U.S. expansionism and empire um, across the continental, um, what we now know as the United States, but even across the Pacific Ocean and into places like the Philippines was very much a part of this history of more contemporary migration. And then the care aspect is to refer to nursing as caregiving and how part of U.S. colonization in the Philippines, um, especially in the early 20th century, involved the establishment of Americanized hospital schools which trained specifically Filipino young women to become nurses and caregivers and trained them in an Americanized nursing curriculum and compelled them to learn the English language. Um, And those specific aspects of an Americanized nursing curriculum and English language fluency would then become the preconditions for the mass migration of Filipino nurses that we see today. CARE also refers to a kind of approach of the American colonizers who went into the Philippines, and it relates to benevolent assimilation, which is a phrase that was historically used referring to a proclamation by U.S. President William McKinley um, during that history and this policy of benevolent assimilation, which signified that the United States was an exceptional colonizer. It was not a brutal or cruel um, imperial power like other um, Western nations, but rather was coming as a friend to the Philippines. And hence the the benevolent aspect of it. And so empire of care is, is also um, referring to those themes of imperialism, caregiving and, and benevolence. But there's a, a critique in the book that while this provided opportunities for young Filipino women in the Philippines and provided in, opportunities for immigration and work in the United States, we have to remember that these um, Filipino nurses were often recruited and employed in um, the most difficult areas to recruit in the United States, and especially public inner city hospitals in graveyard evening shifts in rural areas. And they were often restricted to work at the bedside and at um, you know acute, um, acute but also long term 
Um, but often that bedside care, which leads to their exposure and vulnerability to epidemics and pandemics like COVID-19. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the the stereotype, the Asian American stereotype and why that's harmful in general, but then specifically in the case of these Filipino nurses, how this idea of being women and caregivers sort of plays into that stereotype, but then, you know, is is ultimately kind of a, a dangerous way to to envision people. That's a great question. Because when we think about stereotypes for Asian Americans more broadly, things like the model minority will come up. And then when we think about stereotypes of Filipino Americans specifically, the stereotype of the nurse or the caregiver will will come up. And I imagine that some people might think, well, what's, what's wrong with that? Because aren't these positive stereotypes. And isn't this great branding to be thought of as some kind of model minority or as someone who is who is caring? And in the book, I argue that these stereotypes are very harmful, actually, because they're flat. They're one dimensional and they can turn in an instant and lead to the dehumanization of Asian Americans, we are, which we are witnessing in um, this moment, in this age of, of COVID-19. And stereotypes flatten an incredible multidimensional experience. Not every Filipino American is a nurse. Many are in healthcare, but not all, all Filipino Americans are concentrated in nursing. And it's important to understand that nuance. And then there are Many Filipino Americans, including myself, who aren't health (laughs) workers and who do a range of things in a range of industries. So it's harmful to limit one group's experience to one occupation. And while I think it, it is important to recognize the tremendous contribution that Filipino Americans and Filipino nurses specifically have made to care and to caregiving for the most vulnerable populations, especially here in the United States. It is absolutely important to, to emphasize that. And yet what's detrimental about the stereotype is that it assumes that Filipinos have an innate or natural ability to be caring. And it does away with the incredibly hard work of training to become a professional nurse and all the nuances and the challenges of being a caregiver. And so, so those are some of the, the main reasons why stereotypes are, are harmful, even the seemingly positive ones. So you've also written about adoption and about adoption by white Americans of, of, of Asian babies. So, you know, there's this uh, in the wake of the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court, there's this sort of response uh, from certain people of like, okay, well, you know, adoption, adoption, you know, we'll adopt your baby, those sorts of things. I wonder if you could talk some about your research on adoption and why it's not a sort of answer to just say, well, let's just have a bunch of adoption, you know, so I wonder if you could just reflect on that. 
My second book, Global Families, was about a history of Asian international adoption in the United States. And it focused on the post-World War II period and the, the decades following it to show how that period of history was foundational for the United States becoming an international adoption nation because the United States leads the world in terms of adopting children from overseas. And so many of those children came from Asian countries um, after World War II, after the Korean War. And in Global Families, I point out that this history is nuanced and complicated, and that even though at that time after um, the Korean War as, as one formative moment, even though at that time, adoption was presented, especially by the media and especially by independent adoption activists and, and advocates as a form of humanitarian rescue. And um, there was just this very singular belief that it was the right thing to do, that we had to get um, those children out of Korea and place them here in the United States in white Christian families. And it should be done as quickly as possible. And what we've learned over time from many different um, historians, uh, family historians, adoption historians, is that this was never a simple thing to do and that it was quite complicated and that there were some harmful effects. And sometimes these Asian children were moved from one abusive situation in their Asian country of origin to another one here in the United States. And we couldn't make, we shouldn't be making these assumptions that it is the best solution for the child. And we have to research it carefully and make sure that the placement is done in the most in the most ethical kind of way. So uh, I have one last uh, question for you, and that is uh, at the end of the preface of Asian American Histories, you say, and so I write in the way I wish to live without fear. I write with the desire to see our nation move forward with a sense of collective purpose that emphasizes compassion and care for all. From my research and teaching, I've learned that Asian American histories can illuminate the way forward. I, I think I speak for a lot of Americans right now when I say I would also like to see the nation move forward with a sense of collective purpose. And so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the way that you see learning about Asian American histories as a, a way to, to help us sort of think through where we go from here. Well, thanks so much for engaging with the book. I appreciate that so much. And I think. In regards to Asian American histories illuminating the way forward, one of the things that I'm so struck by in writing this book is that as difficult as it was to confront violence and the erasure of Asian American experience, I was 
left in awe after researching and writing each chapter with the way in which Asian Americans over time have fought not just for their survival, visibility, and their ability to thrive, but to also try to extend that to the broader community. And that can be in terms of, well, taking care of Filipino nurses is about taking care of all American nurses. And all the people who come in contact with these nurses and, and caregivers. So it's it's not solely about a specific, their specific ethnic group, but about the broader community experience. Or how Japanese American activists um, after World War II and their internment and unlawful incarceration wanted to make sure that this never happened again, not solely for themselves and their families, but for any American group, any immigrant should not be incarcerated without due process and should not be associated with being a convenient enemy. So, This reminds me that we're all in this together and we really need each other to fight this pandemic and the other existential crises that we're facing as a nation and a world. Yeah, thank you for that. So tell everyone how they can get Asian American histories. You can get Asian American histories of the United States wherever books are sold from online like bookshop.org as well as other online sellers like Barnes and Noble and others. And you can also get it if they don't have it in your public library or university college school library, ask them to to get it. Excellent. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, And it is such a readable book. I think everyone should go. And I think, uh, I think whether people have essentially no background in Asian American history or know lots of stuff about Asian American history, they're going to get something really meaningful out of this book. So I hope everyone will go pick it up. Thank you. All right. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I know I first reached out to you like a year ago to get you on the podcast and I'm thrilled we finally made it work. (laughs) Yes, I am too. And you can imagine, um, really last year where I was really just in the final stages of writing it. And yeah, it was, it was a pretty challenging time. So thank you for your continued interest. I I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW.